Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. And let's look at verse 4. Matthew 4 and verse 4. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Let's pray. Lord, please help us to think about this and to understand how important, how significant it is. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things, and notice what it says, man cannot live. Man cannot live. And so the question is, do we really believe that? And Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Is that real? Where, where does our life come from? And so we understand there are people all around us in our community that are lost. They're not born again, but they're still alive. Not spiritually. They're not. And I guess the question is, what are we going to do about that? So if we really believe what the Bible says about eternity, about life, how can we keep from talking about it? Uh, when I was in college, I worked at Circuit City. And I had a guy that I worked with. He was a student, an older student from uh, the University of Tennessee. His name was Greg Van Scoy. And we would have fun in the afternoon. We'd take a break and we'd, we'd play Jeopardy against each other. It came on television. And so that we kind of became friends around that. He was a musician and we'd talk about music. Um, but I tried to give him the gospel. And let me just tell you, this guy, just a great guy. Just, a, just a, a man that I just really enjoyed hanging around with. And so I was older. I went back to college when I was 30. And we just had some really good conversations. So obviously, uh, the conversation would inevitably turn to the gospel, to, to spiritual things, to ultimate truth. And so one time I had the opportunity to really take him all the way through the gospel and explain it. And listen to what he said. If I really believed that, then I couldn't do anything else but tell people. Now, I hope he's gotten saved. He didn't accept Christ then. But th that idea, and, and basically what he said, I wish I could remember his exact words, but it was something like, I would have to give my entire life to it. Isn't that true? And, you know, I feel like um, that, we, that we can make a mistake when we think about giving our entire lives to the gospel, that, that we can begin thinking that that means that you've got to become a pastor, that you've got to stop being an engineer or a school teacher or whatever and become a pastor. Well, that's not what God intends, everyone. How many of you would say that people probably would not want to listen to you in a public setting? How many of you would admit that? Okay, I know some preachers that I wish would admit that. <laughs> I sit there, I'm listening, I'm saying, you know what? I don't think it was God that called you to preach because you're the most boring person in the history of the human race. So is that cynical? I don't know if that's cynical. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Maybe they're great, but I doubt it. Um, so we have this strange bifurcation that happens in our thinking. 
I either have to go to, you know, Uruguay or I have to go to, to where am I thinking, New Guinea. Or I, you know what I mean? If, if I'm going to give my life completely, that's what I have to do. Now, some of you are thinking, no, if it's Waikiki, I'm in. But that's this idea that we have, that if we're going to give ourselves completely to the gospel, that it has to be in some kind of vocational sense where now my, my, somebody says, what do you do? Well, I'm a preacher or I'm a missionary. Well, that's a specific calling from God. God has called all of us, according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. So that means that we're full-time Christians. Everywhere we go, we take the gospel message, listen, seriously. Seriously. I, um, you know, Laura's out of town, and um, so I, I needed to eat somewhere today because I don't cook. I can make eggs. That's it. And you can only eat so many eggs. So since I could choose anywhere that I wanted to, I went to the best place in town, Waffle House. Right? Remember Jim Gaffigan said about Waffle House, if you've never been, think of a truck stop bathroom with food. <laughs> but I enjoy Waffle House. And so I was sitting at the little counter because they were busy and there was a guy sitting next to me and he started chatting with me. And I said, man, I need to give this guy the gospel. I need to talk to him. So we start talking just a little bit and then he got up and left. But I was kind of convicted because I really didn't want to tell him. I was tired, wanted to eat. You ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? And that's where we have to understand the significance of our message. It's vital that I don't think I'm alone in that, you know, that, that, and I'm, I'm a pretty confrontational guy. And yet the gospel is confrontation. That's just what it is. And so what I want us to see is why do we do all of the things that we do? So this morning we talked about the comfort of the scriptures and there's comfort in knowing what to do and where we're going and how clean and enduring and all of that that the scriptures are. This evening, I want us to begin talking about the authority of scripture. So when, so Jesus said that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth from the other mouth of God, what is this idea of authority and where does it come from? Um, a, a dictionary from the, from Oxford shorter dictionary. Here's the, the definition of authority. It's the power or right to enforce obedience. It's the power or right to enforce obedience. So parents, you are the authority in your child's life. And so that gives you the right to enforce obedience. And you ought to do that. Amen. You ought to do that. So the, the power or right to enforce obedience, the definition goes on moral or legal supremacy the right to command or give a final decision, the right to command or give a final decision. And so I guess the question is, in your life, does the word of God have the power or right to enforce obedience? Now, as a, just as a practical, 
objective matter, separate from you and your own personal walk, does the word of God have the right to enforce obedience? Yes. Now, personally, we could all, you know, say that, well, sometimes I submit to that power and sometimes I don't. Would you all agree with me on that? That that's kind of our personal testimony. Do you know what the difference, the Bible gives us a great difference between Jesus and you and me. Listen to what Jesus said. I do always those things that my father's commanded me. How about that? That's what Jesus said. I do always those things that my father commanded me. Uh, I wonder if any of us could stand up and say, yeah, that's me too. Man, I wish it were. But that's the idea of authority. And of course, the word of God had supreme authority in Jesus Christ's life, even though he was the word by that testimony. Um, there, there are secular views of authority. Now, you know that especially from the 1960s on, there's this great battle against authority. You know, I'm, it's the rage against the machine. I, I'm going to speak truth to power. I'm going to stick it to the man. All of those thinkings and all of those things. And Ed Bermond uses all of those phrases often. But let me, let's talk about the different kinds of views that the world has of authority. Well, the first is, is and it's all based on power, uh, oligarchical power. And that's the rule of the few. So you hear about these Russian oligarchs. And why do they have power? Because through the Russian mob and all of that stuff after the fall of the Soviet Union, simply through murder and extortion and blackmail and absolute power, there are a few people that rule Russia. How many of you think that's a good system? No, no. And of course, that's the, that's the accusation against our president because of his money. And, uh, you know, you think of, of Mike Bloomberg, and it's funny how he turned himself into a laughingstock, didn't he? It's hilarious. Somebody said that he spent $500 million to get scalped by a fake Indian. <laughs> but that idea of an oligarch, someone that, that's, that's a society where the, uh, the, the powerful few reign. Then there's democratic authority, and that's authority exercised by the people. And without spending a bunch of time on it, I hope you young people know that we're not a democracy. You know, the reason that our founders set up our government the way they did was to make sure that we were not ruled by the mob, right? Everyone has a say, but the people that are elected, you know, the idea is that we elect qualified people to do things. So there are people in the church that, that you know, so Doug Schmidtmeyer, if I need something wired or that kind of stuff, well, let's let him do it because I would burn the building down, right? So we don't, we don't want me to be doing that. You put people in position who have the ability to do the thing that they're responsible for. Now, I wish our government actually worked that way, but that's the idea, right? But, so it's not mob rule. It's not democracy. But in a, in a pure democracy, that is rule by the many, by the people. Then there's hereditary authority. Hereditary authority. That is authority exercised by those in a particular family, you know, like the Bushes or the Clintons. It's not supposed to be that way. Amen? Can I get an amen on that? It's not supposed to be that way. It, we are supposed to elect people 
that have the, the goods that, that are supposed to do that. Now, hereditary authority is more in line with monarchies, you know, where regardless of whether the person's an imbecile or a genius, that because of their name, because of the family that they're in, they are in charge. Um, you know that that happens in some churches. You know, you've got a pastor, he's there for a long time, and, and somehow his son is the one person that's supposed to be the next pastor of that church. Now, sometimes I think that that can be God's plan. If that young man is proven and the people, you know, that's the person that the, the people believe ought to be their leader, that's great. But a lot of times it's not. That hereditary leadership isn't necessarily the right way to do it. Then there's despotic authority. That's authority exercised by one or more in an evil fashion. And we know of despots throughout time, whether it's Stalin or Hitler or Pol Pot or Mao. There, there are despots that have, that have ruled in many ways. And then there's personal authority. That's authority exercised by one person. And the idea of a biblical society is that whether God has us under a king or whether God has us under a president, that our personal authority is where we rule our own lives in a godly manner based on the word of God. Right? And that's, that's that key Baptist doctrine of individual soul liberty. As I mentioned this morning, I can't make you believe. I'm, uh, I can't kill Jeffrey because he doesn't believe in God. Now, we hope someday you do believe in God. But no, no, no you were just helping me today. But that, that's remember that illustration. You can't make anyone believe anything. So in personal authority, that's where we rule ourselves. And we rule ourselves based on certain principles. We either rule, base, rule ourselves based on what we think is right. Or we rule ourselves based on what the Bible says. And young people, let me tell you, the worst thing that you can do is rule your life based on what your friends think. And it's interesting. I think that, that we have that pressure on us all through life. But don't you, those of us who are past that, that early period of our lives, that pressure is, is stronger. Right? Now, you know, I think a lot of us, just whatever. If you don't want to do what I'm doing, then whatever. Got a great house, got a great wife, I'll go home. And so this idea of authority, where does the Bible fit into that? Okay, so it's not any kind of oligarchical rule that the Bible commands. It's not democracy that the Bible commands. It's certainly not a, a, a despotic rule that the Bible commands. So what do we do? We rule, whether it's ourselves or others, based on what the Bible says. And the Bible gives its own understanding of authority of its own authority. In biblical authority, original and ultimate authority resides with God and God alone. Right? So here, this, is, this is good. This is from Richard Mayhew. He said, God did not inherit his authority. There was no one to bequeath it to him. God did not receive his authority. There was no one to bestow it on him. God's authority did, not, authority did not come by way of an election. There was no one to vote for him. God did not seize his authority. There was no one from whom to steal it. God did not earn his authority. It was already his. And so when we believe the Bible and we establish the Bible as our authority, I had someone, I was talking to a girl in Connecticut. Um, I, I told you about it several months ago. And... She said, it seems like circular reasoning. You say to believe the Bible because the Bible says it's true. That's circular reasoning. Well, I suppose in a sense it is. But this is what I said to her. 
but what if it's true? But what if it's true? My father tells me to obey him because he's my father. Well, that's circular reasoning. Well, he actually is my father. He has the authority to do it. And as, as I was growing up, if I didn't, he would demonstrate to me that he had the authority to tell me what to do. God tells us what to do. And then through everything that he's established, he demonstrates that he has the authority to tell you what to do. God has established natural laws. Those natural laws include economics. When you have a country that goes with God's laws of economics, then you have prosperity. If you have a country that goes against God's law of economics, then you don't have prosperity. Does your economics determine whether or not you believe in God? No. That's a law that God has built into the universe like gravity. It doesn't matter whether you believe in gravity or not. You step off a building, gravity takes over. Right? And so these ideas of authority, God has established his own authority based on his own person. God's authority becomes obvious and unquestionable when you consider three things. The first is that God created the heavens and the earth and all that exists. That gives him the authority. Now, remember, you say, well, not everybody believes that. Well, even based on their own science, you've heard this a thousand times here at Grace Baptist, that... You know, now science believes and physics has determined that everything goes back to a singularity. There has to, in order for there to be time now, then there has to be a point when time began other than, because if there was, if you have an infinite number of moments in the past, this moment never would have happened. Okay, that's, that's just logic. That's the way that works. So the Stephen Hawking and others, Brief History of Time, they have determined that time did begin at a point. And that there has to be a time when there was no matter. Well, how did matter come to be? It's logically implausible that matter created itself. There would have had to have been matter in order for matter to be created. For matter to create itself. And the Bible says that God created the world out of nothing in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. He created it all out of nothing. So what we understand is going all the way back to the beginning... That whatever was there, it had to be timeless, immaterial, powerful, volitional. It had to choose to do it. Well, we call that God. And so the earth could not create itself. So it had to be created by something. And that creator was moral. And he established a moral law in the universe that's observed all around our planet. There's never been a society discovered without some form of sacrificial system because every society, it's built into man to know that he has sinned against a holy and powerful God and that God must be appeased. So they come up with all different ways to appease him, but God has told us in his word the only way that he can be appeased, and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. So God established his authority, first of all, in creation, And then God established his authority. Secondly, look at uh, Psalm 24. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. We didn't deal with this aspect of the psalm. So God's authority becomes obvious and unquestionable when we consider first that God created the heavens and the earth and all that exists. One of my favorite things about the creation and it's, uh, I learned it in John Phillips commentary on Genesis and this has to be 25 years ago that I saw it. 
where he's going through the days of creation. And then he lists the number of stars that we know about, how many stars there are in the universe. And the way the scripture says that God created that, it says, and he created the stars also. And it's just, he did that too. It's just awesome. That's the creative power and authority of God. Psalm 24 and verse 1, the earth is whose? And the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. So God owns the earth, all that it contains, and those who dwell on it. And then third, in the end, he's going to consume it all. Look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3. And that was Kent Hovind's line that, yes, we believe in the Big Bang. We just believe it happens at the end, not the beginning. Second Peter chapter 3, look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You know, the elements couldn't melt. That idea, until we understood a nuclear reaction, people didn't understand how that could happen. And of course, you know that science can't tell us how atoms stay together, but the Bible says that Jesus upholds all things with the word of his power, and one day he's going to let it go. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? You split one atom and you get Hiroshima. What happens when they all split? Amazing. Amazing. That is his authority. It's his power. Then there are New Testament attestations to divine authority. Look at Matthew chapter 28. It's so funny. Y'all look pretty tired. It's amazing what that one hour does. Incredible. Matthew chapter 28. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So if he has it all, how much is left? Nothing. Nothing. So that is a, a demonstration of, of the power that Jesus Christ has. And, and how does he get that power? Well, he has it in his very nature. And yet look at what God has done. Philippians chapter 2. So based on Jesus Christ being willing to die, to humble himself and die for us, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Is that authority? Yes. Yes. Um, I, this afternoon, um, I, I was watching an interview. It's this Socrates in the city. It's where Eric Metaxas interviews different people. And he interviewed Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel is the founder of PayPal. And uh, he's on the board of Facebook. But he's a great thinker and a Christian. And I was... To be honest, I didn't know any of this stuff about him. I'd heard his name. I knew he had founded PayPal. Um, he was one of the initial investors in Facebook. So I think he's got a little cash. And 
So Metaxas, that was his last question. So based on your wealth, the question is, what are you going to do for me? That was the last question that he had. Um, I was stunned at Teal's intellect. The, va- the, the ability that he had to talk about church history and doctrine and the culture and science and if you ought to watch it, it's unbelievable. I was, I was, and then his ability to take these huge thoughts and break them down. So like he said that, you know, the medieval, the, the seven deadly sins or whatever, those are all represented on Gilligan's Island. You know, and he had greed as Thurston Howell and lust as Ginger and envy as Marianne and, you know, anger as the skipper. <laughs> he went through all those things. And it's silly, but it was just fun the way that he could take a subject like that and bring it into pop culture. I suppose it's pop culture from about 40 years ago because these guys don't have any idea what I'm talking about. But honestly, you know, I think you guys know I enjoy delving into the intellectual things and I always wanted to be that. <laughs> God did not equip me to be that. And so I, I so enjoy listening to them wrestle with these things. Then I watched an interview with Peter Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens' brother, who is a Christian. And, and their ability with the language, Teal's understanding of everything that's going on, his, his premise in this was that we've really made, not, we've made hardly any scientific advancements in the last 50 years. He said, basically what we've done is we've gotten people a cell phone that they can use to play games while they're on the train to help to keep them from thinking about how bad the tunnel is that they're about to go through. And he talked about how 50 years ago they were going to cure cancer within five years. And, every, and, and the, the problem is it's a lack of funding. So anyway... It was just so interesting listening to him talk about all of these different things. And here's what happens to me when I watch something like that. I'm listening to his ability to communicate. And then I watched Peter Hitchens' ability to communicate. Neither of them are preachers. My job's to be a preacher. And somehow I've got to come into this room and help you all to understand the authority of the scriptures in your life using the English language in a way that I, I just don't feel like I'm supremely equipped to do. And then you get to a passage like Philippians. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that he is Lord. And you know the thought that I had? I don't have to have great words. I don't have to have a great intellect. All I have to do is be able to tell you what the Bible says. What does it mean when it says every knee shall bow? What do you think that means, Jason? Every knee shall bow. You don't have to have a great intellect to be able to do that. It's so wonderful that here's what God did. I was talking to a friend, John Moore, yesterday. And so he, you you remember John, he helped us with our building. And um, 
but he's involved in ministry. So I was talking to him about the sufficiency of scripture, getting ready to preach on that at that uh, pastor's conference week after next in New York. And I was going to talk with you all about it today. And so I said, when you think of the sufficiency of scripture, what do you think? And he said, well, I think that, uh, that I have a loving father and that loving father, he doesn't hide his desires from me. I'm not wondering about how I can please him. That he has given me a book and he's made it crystal clear. So that are there things in the Bible we don't understand? Well, of course. And, and that's what Mark Twain said. He said, it's not the things in the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the things that I do understand. Right? And so John was saying how he made that book crystal clear for me so that I know exactly what he wants. Isn't that good? I talked with uh, Mark Trotter yesterday for, I don't know, almost an hour. Pray for him. You know, he's going through all these treatments for his cancer. And, man, it's just a bummer. He's supposed to be in Malawi right now. and But that gave me the chance to talk to him for an hour yesterday. So that's good for me. And he said this. It was so cool. He said, so we were talking about what John had said. He and John have been friends since they were in their 20s. And they're old men now. And uh, he said, how cool is it that God inspired his word, the, the biblical writers wrote it, and then he preserved it in a language that we speak in English and that we can just look at it and read it and know exactly what it says. Just like Philippians chapter 2 and verse 10 that every knee is going to bow and every tongue's going to confess. And isn't it better if we do that now before he returns? He came as the lamb and he's going to come back as the lion. Now, not only that, look at Jude chapter 25. Y'all doing okay? I got to watch that stuff because Laura was gone. She wouldn't have enjoyed it at all. Look at verse 25. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory. So it's Jude, verse 25. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. He has the authority, doesn't he? He has the authority. Now, I want to give you just a couple of things and let's, let's finish up with this. I want to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture in its interpretation. It's not a work of the Spirit by which the Scriptures come alive in some subjective way to each believer. So there is a guy named uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, and he came up with this idea of neo-orthodoxy. So orthodoxy, basically, it means you agree with the creeds. It's if, if you believe in the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, you're orthodox. Neo-orthodoxy came along, and the idea of that is we would say that the Bible is the Word of God. Would you all agree with that? Neo-orthodoxy said the Bible contains the Word of God. Big difference, isn't it? And, well, then how do you know what part of it is the, God, is the Word of God? How do you know which part of it is? 
Well, when it speaks to you. In neo-orthodoxy, the Bible becomes the word of God when it speaks to you. So what is the, the uh, activating agent in that system? Me. You. No, the Bible is the word of God. Whether I agree with it or not, the Bible is the word of God. And so in interpretation, the Bible interprets itself. I am not at the center. The word of God and the Holy Spirit are at the center. So in its interpretation... It does not provide a new special revelation to the individual believer over and above what the text itself says. And so that's, a, that's kind of a formal way of saying that what I'm about to say to you is wrong. Let me tell you what this passage means to me. And so often small groups, did any of you come from a church that has small groups? I had a guy ask me a while back, do you guys have small groups? I said, yeah, they're really small. It's one-on-one. Because, I don't know, maybe some of you have been in a small group, and what happens is you read a passage of Scripture, and you go around the circle, and everybody says what the passage means to them. How many of you have ever experienced something like that? And there's no authority. You get Everybody says what it means to them. Oh, that's so nice. And you go on, and you leave there, and you've got 15 different views on what the Bible says. We're not allowed to do that. So that's why we're leading into how to study the Bible. So even in its own interpretation, listen, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient. Now, remember what the point of how to study the Bible is. I want you to be able to do it without me. Now, I'm glad I get to do this. Don't fire me, okay? I'm glad I get to do this, but I want you to be able to do it without me. And don't you think that's what God wants us to do? The Bible says that we have no need that any man teach us. So now, what about its clarity? The Bible clearly articulates God's truth. The Bible accurately reveals and clearly communicates God's message. So let's talk about its sufficiency. I just want us to read a couple of passages together and we'll be done. So look with me at Psalm 119, 105. I know that you all know this verse. Psalm 119 and verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So what does it do? It shows me where I'm going and it shows me how I'm going. Where I'm going, how I'm going. Really important. That's what the Bible does. It's sufficient to show me that. Number two, it's more reliable than even the most amazing spiritual experiences. Second Peter chapter 1. I remember the first time that I learned this truth and it helped me so much. So remember, Peter was one of, was along with James and John, Jesus, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says this in verse 16, second Peter chapter one and verse 16, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So Peter got to experience that, right? He wanted to build the tabernacles. God spoke from heaven. Look at verse 18. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So he heard the, he was there in the presence of God the Son and heard the audible voice of God the Father. Verse 19. We have also, uh, what are those next two words? 
more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Here's the thing that's so important. This is more sure than the audible voice of God. Why did Peter say that? Because Peter was there with Jesus. He's experiencing a miracle with, the, with Moses and Elijah being there, talking about the death that Jesus would accomplish. He hears the, the voice of God, and he misunderstood it all. Peter denied Jesus Christ. Why? Because when he saw Moses and Elijah, he wanted to build those tabernacles because he thought the Feast of Tabernacles was about to be fulfilled. He thought Jesus was about to establish his kingdom. Why? Because a few days earlier, Jesus said, there'll be some of you standing here that will not see death till you see the Son of Man come in his glory. Jesus is glorified in front of him. He's transfigured in front of him. Peter had a supernatural experience and completely misunderstood it. And it drove him to deny Jesus Christ himself. You know that there are people all over the world that are told that they need to judge their Christianity based on their supernatural experiences. And they are so discouraged over and over and over again. Many of them ultimately walk away from God or they feel like they have never lived up to the standard God wants them to live to. And that's why they've never experienced their miracle. Listen, this is more sure than any personal experience you can ever have. Stop seeking for the personal experience and believe God. That's our authority. It is sufficient. Then it's able to lead a person to saving faith. Look at Second Timothy chapter 3. It's able to, to lead a person to saving faith. It's sufficient. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It's able to make you wise unto salvation. And then... I love this. It, th- this is such a neat thing. Folks, do you know what the Bible does for you? It enables you to lead your children to Christ. Remember, it was, it was Timothy's mother and grandmother that led him to Christ. The apostle Paul built him in the faith, but it was his mother and grandmother that led him to Jesus using the Bible. And that from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures. What a wonderful thing that is. Then it, instru- it instructs even the religious elite as well as the common believer. We're not going to take the time to go there, but that's Deuteronomy 6.4 and Mark chapter 12. Number five, it was given by God to parents to instruct their children. Paul wrote that all scripture is given by inspiration. And then it's useful for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. See, the thing that we need to understand is that there is comfort in divine authority. Because I could be going through a hard time and I can go to Doug, I can go to Justin, Justin, I can go to Brian, probably not Ed, but I could go to all of these people and get biblical instruction from them and it can help me. It can help me. Have you ever been at your end? You don't know what to do. And then you go to a faithful Christian who believes the word of God and they give you comfort from the scriptures. You might say something like this, man, I, I, I don't know why this is happening in your life. But let me tell you what we know about God. There's comfort 
in that. There's comfort in it. When someone's suffering, when something terrible happens in their life, we don't go in there and say, well, I know exactly why that's happening. It's because you did this. No, we say, man, I don't have any idea, but I know that God loves you. I know that this world stinks, this world has fallen, that because of the sin that's in this world, we all end up with sickness and trouble. There's trouble all around us. This entire world is against what we're trying to do as believers. But I know that we win. I know that we win. I know that we can hope in God. Look at Romans chapter 15. Look at verse 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. What are those next two words? In believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. What are we supposed to believe? We're supposed to believe in God as he has revealed in his word. Look at, let's finish up with this. Second Thessalonians chapter two, look at verse 13. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning, uh, sorry, it's first Thessalonians. You'll see why I read farther than I should have. Because the beginning of the verse says the same thing. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause thank we God without ceasing. Because that when ye received the word of God. Which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of men. But as it is in truth the word of God. Now notice what it says here. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So Romans 15.13 we have joy and hope in believing. And the way that that works is when you believe the Bible, it effectually works in you. So the Bible doesn't become the word of God when you believe it, but it begins working in you when you believe it. Listen, it begins working in you instead of working against you. Believe it. Believe it. It's sufficient. It's powerful. It's authoritative. And when we're in struggles in life, that's when we need, when, when we are weak, that's when we need the firm and strong foundation of the word of God. Man, it's so important. We just saw in, uh, I don't know if you saw in the news that a building in China, a hotel where they were housing the coronavirus victims, five-story hotel, it collapsed. They said one of the support structures crumbled. Let me just tell you something. It doesn't matter how bad the storms get. Your support structure will never crumble if your support structure is the word of God. Let's believe it. Let's trust in it. Let's learn it. Let's make sure it's the authority in our life and make sure that we believe that it is sufficient we don't need external books. And y'all know that I'm for external books. I read a lot. And I hope you guys do too. None of that is our authority. 
Our authority is the word of God. Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for Grace Baptist. Thank you for these faithful people. And Lord, help us to understand that this is more than an academic exercise, that we're laying foundations for how to love your word and how to understand it.